Please turn to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. I'm only going to be reading the first couple of verses of Amos to start us off with. But you need to keep Amos open because we're going to go walking straight through the book of Amos here. And I'm going to be going around to different passages in Amos. So you're going to keep your Bible open this morning. Now, uh, let me introduce what we're doing. We, we have been preaching a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a, a verse-by-verse walk through the life of Christ, a, a harmony of the Gospels. And we are taking a break from that. Uh, we've been preaching that series for about a year now. And we're taking a break from that to do a summer series. And we normally do that. We break away to do something special in the summer. And this uh, summer we're doing a series through the 12 minor prophets. And these are going to be 12 overview sermons of the 12 minor prophets, meaning that I'm going to preach one sermon on each one of the minor prophets. So each book is going to be a sermon. So it's a little bit different than what we're used to. We're used to going to a specific passage of Scripture, a small passage of Scripture, and preaching through that, maybe taking a few weeks to preach through that passage of Scripture. But today, this is a, a sermon for over a whole book. And I didn't realize how much I chewed off until... When I said we were going to do these overview sermons until I really got to study them, it's, it's hard to prepare a sermon for a, for a whole book of Scripture. So I need you praying for me at this very moment that this will work this morning. But uh, we are doing these overview sermons. Why, why an overview sermon? Well, first of all, I wanted to take us to the Minor Prophets because I believe that the Minor Prophets are some of the most neglected books in all of Scripture. And the whole Bible is inspired by God, and none of it is to be neglected. And there's great truths for us to go back and to examine in the minor prophets. And, and I think the minor prophets get a little bad rap because of what they're called, the, the minor prophets. It has nothing to do with how important they are, although I think that's kind of how people view it. Well, those are the minor prophets. Uh, if you're going to go preach, preach from a major prophet, right? But minor simply refers to the size of the books. It has nothing to do with the value of these books. So we are going to preach through the 12 minor prophets, do 12 overview sermons. Overview sermons, I think, are something that's good for a congregation as well. I heard Mark Dever talking about the, the need for a healthy diet of different types of sermons in the church. And he compared it to, uh, like, if you're on Google Maps, you can zoom all the way into street level, go down to the street level, and that would be a, a very expository sermon that's focusing on a small passage of text, maybe looking more closely at the syntax and verbs and different things. And, and the church definitely needs a healthy diet of that type of preaching. But sometimes you need to zoom back a little bit and get a, get a little bit wider angle view. And maybe you're going to preach through a whole chapter of Scripture. And, and so you want to see not only where the street is, but where it is in comparison to the rest of the streets in the city. And then maybe even zoom back a little bit farther and, and give an overview sermon like we're doing today so you can see where this book fits in the whole story of redemptive history. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the Minor Prophets doing overview sermons. And I'm going to do them in chronological order, the way they... They appeared as far as when they came on the scene and gave their prophecies. So it's going to be a little bit different order than what's in your Bible. So today we're starting with Amos. And as you think about the minor prophets, I was thinking about, just for the sake of illustration, when I lived in Ecuador, there were lots of volcanoes. And Marikito, where I live, was surrounded by seven volcanoes. Some of those volcanoes were active, they were alive, and some of those volcanoes were dead. They were dormant, or they weren't even dormant. They were simply dead volcanoes. They were no longer active. And I got to visit several different volcanoes while we were there. And you can, most of those volcanoes, you can go and you can look at the, the crater and, and see these volcanoes. And there's a different feeling you get when you walk up to a, a, a dead volcano and look over in its crater 
than when you go to a volcano that's actually still active and alive. And you look over in its crater and you see this smoke coming up and these fumes coming up out of the volcano. It's a very different feeling approaching the edge of that volcano. And I think some of us look back at the Old Testament, in particular passages like the Minor Prophets, and we treat them like a dead volcano. Oh, isn't that neat? We need to come to the Minor Prophets saying this is an active volcano. The power of God that is presented in the book of Amos is still active for us today. So don't approach the Minor Prophets thinking, ah, that's just old stuff. It doesn't really apply to us. It does. Everything it said here is meant for the church as well. So... It's important, though, when we go to Old Testament passages that we consider the context. We consider carefully how to apply it to our world today. So with that said, I want us to go now to Amos. Please stand, if you would, as we begin to read the book of Amos. We're simply going to read Amos 1, verses 1 through 2. Again, I'll remind you, we're going to be jumping around through Amos in this passage today. Amos chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word because this is God's inerrant Word. The prophecy that came from the lips of Amos was inspired by God. Amos 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Caramel withers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider Amos today, I pray that you'd help us hear the roar of the Lord. The Lord roars in this book. And it can be frightful. But God, if we understand why he's roaring, we'll find our hope in Christ alone. So God, I pray now that you take this time, use it for your glory, enable my, the mess that I've made of trying to prepare a sermon. I pray that you take my mess, bless it, and use it for the glory of your kingdom. And I pray that you'd enable ears to hear this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little historical context here. When the minor prophets are on the scene, God's kingdom of Israel has been divided. After Solomon, there was King Saul, then David, then Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom was divided between the southern tribes, which were Judah and Benjamin, and the northern tribes, ten tribes of Israel. The southern tribes, which were called Judah, were under the house of David. The northern tribes, which were called Israel or Samaria, were under other kings. Um, So that's the situation as Amos comes on the scene here. Now, most of the minor prophets prophesied during the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. It's a relatively small period of time. There seemed to be an explosion of prophetic word during the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. Amos is considered the first of the writing prophets. He wasn't the first prophet on the scene. There's others who were before him like Elijah, Elisha. But he's the first of the writing prophets. And Amos is bringing his prophetic word about 200 years after the kingdom has been divided... And he's bringing his prophetic word to to Israel during a time of great prosperity. Israel was experiencing a prosperity they had never experienced since the times of Solomon. The borders had been extended to where they once were when Solomon was king. Wealth abounded. There were no immediate foreign threats. But underneath the security and the prosperity 
of Israel was a wickedness that Amos was going to expose through the prophetic word of God. This passage here that we read to start off with, the Lord roars from Zion. This passage reminds me of a passage from the famous book that C.S. Lewis wrote, the most famous of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You'll remember this passage when the children discover that Aslan, the great Aslan, king of Narnia, was in fact a lion. This is how they react. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That great famous section of the Chronicles of Narnia came to mind as we think about God as a lion. That famous line came to mind as we thought about these first words here in Amos. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Children, did that scare you? Did it scare you? You know what? If you were to hear a lion's roar outside your door, it should scare you. We need to understand that a lion's roar was meant to be a terrifying thing to the people of Israel as Amos says these words. See, we think of a lion's roar and all we can think of is what we've heard on TV. Maybe the little MGM lion at the beginning of a movie. All right. Or what we've gone to the zoo and heard as a little whimpering lion is stuck in a cage. But not the people of Israel. They knew no zoos. And of course they didn't have television. When he says the roar of a lion, they knew. If they're in their tent and they hear the roar of a lion, danger is at the doorstep. There's a lion outside. The beast is close. Danger is imminent. And if he's roaring, that means he's preparing to devour. Right off the bat, Amos presents God as a roaring lion ready to devour. Later on in Amos 3 verse 6, he would say this. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos immediately wants the people to hear the word of the Lord and not just take it lightly. So it's the same word to us. Don't come at the book of Amos like it's a dead volcano. It's alive. Hear the roar of God this morning. Now Amos is the one that God has chosen to be an instrument of his roaring message. And as God often does, he chose a rather ordinary, simple, average person to do his bidding. He chose a shepherd. A shepherd of Tekoa is what it tells us here in the scripture. He chooses a shepherd to bring his prophecy of judgment to Israel. In this case, God didn't choose a royal official, a powerful king, or some prominent religious leader. He chose a lowly shepherd. And God is in the habit of doing that all throughout Scripture. I mean, of all the people that God uses throughout Scripture, most of the time, now he does occasionally use the royal official here or there or whatever, but mostly he uses the lowly of society. He he takes the, the weak to shame the strong. 
Why? Because God wants all the glory. He wants to receive all the glory when his word goes forth and people repent and believe. As Jesus would later tell Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. God wants people to hear the power of his roar, so he chooses a weak shepherd to be the messenger. Later in chapter 7, in a confrontation that that Amos would have with one of the corrupt priests of Israel, Amos confirms that he wasn't a professional prophet like so many others were. You see, during this time, there were professional prophets. They came up in a school of prophecy. They were called the sons of the prophets. And there were these professional prophets who were paid to give prophecies. And usually they only prophesied whatever the people wanted to hear. But God's prophets were the ones he chose. And rarely did he choose them out of the people that, out of the group that the, the society considered to be the true prophets. So here comes Amos. He says, I'm not one of the prophets. I'm simply a shepherd. He had been tending sheep and he was tending sycamore trees when God told him to bring a prophetic word to Israel, the northern tribes, as we mentioned earlier. But here's the deal. Amos was from Tekoa. Tekoa was in Judah. It was from the southern tribes. So he's a southern boy going up north to bring a roaring message. Everything's already stacked against him. He's an outsider bringing a difficult message to a difficult people. And he's bringing it during a time of great peace and prosperity. You know the hardest time to preach and encourage people or to, to exhort people to listen to the powerful word of God and to, and to, to help them see that God is, is, is a righteous and just judge is during times when, they don't, when they're at ease. When people are at ease and life is going great, they don't want to hear a message of judgment. Really? Come on. But Amos brings this message to the people of Israel. But ultimately, this isn't a book about Amos. It's a book about the one who gave the message. It's about God. It's about the roaring lion. So let us hear the roar of the lion this morning. And your first um, point in your notes, which I believe I forgot to put on the screen. I'm so sorry. It just says Amos there. That's not your notes, by the way. That just, that's what book we're in. I forgot to put the notes in. So here's the first blank. Hear the roar of his absolute sovereignty over the nations. The first roar I want you to hear this morning is hear the roar of God's absolute sovereignty over the nations. God is the ruler and judge of all nations, of all people. And that's how Amos' prophecy begins with a prophetic word of judgment on the nations. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And Amos uses that formula over and over again. He says, for three transgressions of blank, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And this is a, this is a poetic phrase that Amos is using to simply reinforce the fact that the sins of the people were so, so uh, full and so complete that God was now going to bring his judgment. It's more like saying there was enough and more than enough sin for the people to merit God's judgment. Enough and more than enough. Now, this first part of the prophecy um, that, that, that Amos is bringing to the people of Israel, they would have been pleased to hear. For this whole first, first uh, chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, the people love the message because he's bringing a prophetic judgment against the surrounding nations. Okay? So first, Damascus in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And then Gaza, which is the, the Philistines in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. And then Tyre in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. And then Edom. In verses 11 through 12 of chapter 1. And then the Ammonites in verses 13 through 15. And then the Moabites in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So you can imagine the crescendo of cheers as these nations were listed. Because Israel hated their neighbors. Hated these nations around them. 
And they, they would be cheering as Amos' sermon picked up speed. They'd be nodding their heads. Pastors like it when they're preaching and they see people nodding their heads. So long as they're nodding their heads over the right things, right? And so they're all nodding, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, yeah, you bet. Go get them, God. But you can imagine that things began to change quickly. Perhaps a collective gasp came from the crowd when, when Amos announces the next defendant in the courtroom of the Almighty. And it's Judah. Amos 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, this was getting a little close to home. Judah, the northern tribes, they had no love lost for Judah. But at the same time, they knew that Judah, along with themselves, were the chosen people of God, the offspring of Abraham. The fact that they were listed with the other nations was surely troublesome. Now, the other nations are are judged, and I'll get to this in a little bit, for their cruelty, for their inhumanity. But Judah is judged for a different reason. Look at verse, uh, the continuation there of of Amos chapter 2, verse 4. Why is he judging them? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. You see, they, unlike the other nations, had a special revelation from God, God's law. But they had rejected it. Now Amos still probably would have been okay if he stopped his sermon right there. But he didn't. For then came the message that no one listening to Amos' prophetic word wanted to hear. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. You see, God is the judge of all nations, including his people, Israel. Now let us stop there a moment and consider why God must judge all the nations, including Israel. So I want to look here at Amos and see if we have any clues as to why God is bringing these these words of judgment. You see, Amos announces that God is coming to judge like a lion because he's holy. If you look over at Amos 4 verse 2, you'll see that it says the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. He is going to judge because he's a holy God. His holiness demands justice. So I might adjust C.S. Lewis's quote quote a bit. He is not safe. Because he is good. He is not safe because he's good. Because God is good and holy and just, he has to judge sin. So as the nations are sinning and as his own people, Israel, are sinning, God, to be true to his own nature of who he is, has to bring judgment upon sin. Verses 8 of Amos chapter 6. Amos 6, verse 8, we read that same phrase again, but just a little bit differently. It says, the Lord God has sworn by himself. By himself. So he has sworn by his holiness. He has sworn by himself. His holiness is himself. It's his character. God is holy and his holiness isn't a trait that is endowed upon him or bestowed upon him. It's simply who he is. He is holy, holy, holy. If there's any holiness in us, it's because it's been, it's been given to us. But not God. God, by his very nature, by his character, is a holy God. And so for God not to look upon sin with indignation and with holy wrath would be a violation of his own character. If God didn't judge sin, he would violate who he was, and therefore he would cease to be God, and the universe would cease to exist. God has to judge sin. 
because of who he is. And friends, by his very nature, he has to judge sins. And he's more than able to judge sins. Amos 4, 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He is holy, therefore he is just, therefore he will judge sin and he will judge it with power. Hear his roar this morning. Hear the roar of a just and holy God. Now I want us to not only hear that he is a hear the roar of his sovereignty over the nations, I want to hear the roar of his verdict against the nations. So your next blank is hear the roar of his just verdict against the nations. In these first verses, we see that God is not only judging the sin of his people, Judah and Israel, but he's judging the sin of all the nations. All sin is judged, friends. We must see that God judges all nations because all men have sinned. Even nations and persons that have not received any special revelation from him. Even nations that haven't heard the gospel. God judges. These other nations around Israel, they had not received special revelation like Israel had or like Judah had. They were not privileged to have God's law, God's word given to them. But that does not free them from judgment. Romans 1 through 3 make this so very clear. Romans 1, 8 says, For the wrath of God, that's that holy Judgment against sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are what? They are without excuse, according to Paul. No man has an excuse before God. No nation has an excuse before God. Why? Because not only do our consciences testify to the reality that God is true and real, so does the natural world around us. You can look at creation and you know there is a God. Therefore, God is absolutely just in judging even those who've never heard the gospel. For they've already rebelled against the light that God has given them in general revelation. All men rebel against the light that God has given them in general revelation. They rebel against their own consciences. They rebel against what can be seen. So they have enough knowledge of God to be damned to hell forever. But they don't have enough knowledge of God to be saved because they need to hear the gospel. You see, Israel's job, Israel's job was to be a light unto the nations. To spread the message of this great God they served. And they failed. They hated the nations around them. Makes me sad that the church acts like Israel a lot. Here we are talking about the holiness of our God. And there's people out there, their own conscience has condemned them. The nature has condemned them. And they don't have the gospel. And we sit here smiling. We must spread the gospel beyond these walls. Beyond this city. Beyond this nation. Now God is specifically judging the foreign nations here for their inhumanity, their immorality, their cruelty. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Let's, look, let's just look at this one example where God will punish Damascus. I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. What he's referring to here were these, these, these sledges that they used that would be pulled by animals, which were usually used to thresh out grain. And what they would use them for during times of war is they would put iron spikes on the bottom of these threshes. And as 
as the armies would go through and there would be wounded soldiers still on the battlefield, wounded people and maybe even some dead bodies on the battlefield, they would take these, these sledges and roll over the bodies to mutilate the people and to kill those who were still alive. It was absolutely inhumane and cruel. And God was judging the people for these actions. But the focus of Amos' Amos's prophetic word of God was mainly upon the people of Israel. So let us ask the question this morning, what was God judging Israel for? What's their verdict? What's going on? Well, overall, I think we can see that the sins of Israel represented in the book of Amos fall into three basic categories, and that's in your notes here. God specifically was judging Israel, number one, for corrupting affluence, meaning their prosperity. Number two, for compromised justice. And number three, for contemptible worship. You see this throughout the book. You see it right off the bat here in chapter 2, verse 6. So we look at the second half of verse 6 here. And he's talking about the judgment upon Israel. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So pause right there. This was a time of great affluence in Israel, prosperity. But the people loved their money more than they loved justice. They were willing to sell the righteous for silver. This means they were taking bribes. They were taking bribes and, and putting people in, in prison or in jail unjustly just so that they can make more money. And then it says the needy for a pair of sandals. This refers to slavery. Selling someone into slavery was a common practice of dealing with debt. And they were selling people in slavery for debts as small as a pair of sandals. Oh yeah, you're not going to pay me my sandals back? Well, you're going to serve me, buddy. And this was the justice that was going on, the injustice that was going on in Israel. They were an affluent people. They had money, but they they loved money more than they loved justice. Their affluence, their prosperity had corrupted them. They had become greedy for gain, and they had fallen in love with money. And as a result, justice in the nation had been compromised. So they had corrupting affluence and compromised justice. Social injustice ruled the day, verse 7 of that same chapter. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So there's injustice ruling the day. And all of this flowed out of their corrupted worship, their contemptible worship. They had incorporated the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, such as cult prostitution. So you continue in verse 7. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. The people of Israel were a very religious people. But it was a contemptible worship in the eyes of God. It had been mixed with the pagan practices around them. They brought their depraved lifestyles, their greed, their bribes, their selfish indulgences into the house of the Lord. They profaned his name, corrupting affluence, compromised justice, and contemptible worship. We see this repeated throughout the book of Amos. Amos repeatedly prophesies about the prosperity of the people and their injustice toward the weak in society. In chapter 3, verse 15, he talks about their summer and winter homes, that they had houses that were made out of ivory, great houses. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls the women of Israel cows, cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. That's a pretty um, politically incorrect thing to say to the women in your church. You cows. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what Amos said. 
Why was he calling them cows? It wasn't because of their appearance. It was because of their lazy, luxurious lifestyles that took advantage of the poor. They were fat in their affluence. Amos chapter 5, verse 10 says this. You can turn there if you want. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks truth. So if anyone came and began to speak the truth of God about these things, they hated to hear it. Verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you will not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and who turn aside the needy at the gate. What was the gate? The gate was the place where justice was supposed to be served. They didn't have courthouses then. They didn't have a square with a courthouse in it. The courthouse was the gates. The elders met at the gate, and that's where justice was carried out. And obviously justice was being perverted because those who were in need of justice were being turned aside. Self-indulgent social injustice flowing out of a false worship. Continuing in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen to them. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Their worship was contemptible before the Lord. Do we not hear the roar of the lion in our day? Do we not live in a day of corrupting affluence? I saw a statistic this week. Friends, if you make $24,000 a year, you are in the upper 5% in the world. 5%. If you make $24,000 a year. If you make more than $54,000 a year, you are in the upper 1% of the world's population. Do we realize how much wealth that God has allowed to be accumulated in America? And what's happening? We're getting fat like cows. We have a corrupting affluence. And what happens? Social injustice flows out of that. My friends, do we not see the injustice all around us? What greater injustice can there be than 55 million of the weakest in society slaughtered since 1973? But we are afraid to speak. It may cost us something. These days, you may get audited. We're afraid to speak out. Our affluence has corrupted us and injustice flows in our nation. And do we not live in a day when much of the worship that claims to be worship of the one true God is in reality contemptible in God's eyes? Why? Because it's worship designed to please men and not glorify God. You see, Israel's problem wasn't that they didn't want to worship or even love to worship. Their problem wasn't a church attendance problem. Their problem was a heart problem. You see, it says in Amos 4.4, Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply your transgression. Bethel and Gilgal, that's where they came and worshipped. That's where replicas of the temple had been set up. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. And offer thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. 
For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. He is telling them to come and worship and sin in the process. The worship that you're bringing, the the church attendance that you're giving me, even your thanksgivings are simply transgressions and sins. And the people love to do it. Just because someone loves to go worship does not mean they're worshiping. Because a lot of people love to worship themselves because they think God's all about them. God's going to make my life better. God's going to fix this. God's going to do that. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. Half our songs have me in it more than it has God in it. Friends, the same lion that roared against corrupting affluence, compromised justice, and contemptible worship still roars today. If if we will listen, God has not stopped hating those sins, for God is still holy and just. And by his very nature, he hates these sins. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to hear his roar through Amos. And it was due to these sins that Israel, according to God, was, well, that Israel, according to chapter 5, verse 17, that God was going to pass through their midst. If you look at Chapter 5, verse 17, you'll see that God was going to pass through their midst. What what, what does that phrase, pass through, remind you of, but it's very different than? What happened in Exodus is God passed over his people. But not this time. He's going to pass right through them. He's going to pass right through them. He's going to bring judgment upon His people, he tells them in chapter 4, verse 13, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I almost titled the sermon today, Prepare to Meet Your God, but I thought that might be a little harsh. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The head nodding had stopped at this point. The people didn't like Amos' message. How could God bring judgment upon his own people? Well, it's precisely because they were his people that his judgment was so severe upon them. They had been given more. They had been given special revelation. To whom much is given, much is required. Amos 3.1 says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Israel had been chosen. They had been called out to be a light unto the nations. But instead they had become just like the nations. Friends, what a fearful thing it is when God's people become like the world around it. How dangerous, O oh church, when we who have also been called to be a light into the world act like the darkness. We veil our foolishness in religious language saying that we're trying to reach the world. So we're going to act like the world so we can reach the world. And it's just stupidity. It's contemptible worship before God. If Israel was so judged, how much more with those who have even a greater revelation? Israel was judged and they had much, much light. They had the law of God that pointed to Christ and now we have the new covenant, new testament. How much more will we be under the judgment of God? 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of our God? Who can stand under God's judgment? For all have sinned. Every single person in this church is a sinner. Well, then, is there any hope? Well, the only hope is in the gospel of God. And we'll get to that in a minute. 
But for now, back to Israel here. Due to the fact that they had profaned God's name before the nations, God, as if in some heavenly courtroom, calls the nations to testify against his chosen ones. Amos 3, 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So the image here is God's calling the other nations to sit on the mountain of Samaria like they're, like they're a jury in a courtroom and look, see the evidence. And so God roars through Amos with a series of judicial statements upon Israel. The first one we find in chapter 3, verse 11, right after the passage we just read. Therefore says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Now two more divine therefores are pronounced in this book. Chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. Chapter 6, verses 7 through 14. But let's continue with this one. Verse 12. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. Do you know why a shepherd would go and rescue pieces of a sheep from a lion's mouth? My daughter who loves animals over there is crunching. Her face is all crunched up. I'm sorry. You know why God would rescue pieces of animals from a lion? Why a shepherd would go and do that? Do you remember in Exodus 22? There's a law. One of God's laws on the books was simply this. If you're watching someone else's animal and that animal is torn by beasts, you had to bring the remains of the animal to prove that it truly had been devoured by the beast and you weren't just trying to steal it. The remnant, what's left of Israel, is the proof that God's judgment was real and true. Israel would be overthrown about 20 to 30 years after this message. Israel would be completely wiped off the map. About 30 years after this message from Amos, Israel is wiped off the face of the earth. From the height of prosperity to the depths of despair... But perhaps the greatest tragedy, the greatest doom that would come upon Israel is described in chapter 8, verse 11 through 12. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. My friends, one of the ways God judges his people, one of the ways God judge, brings judgment upon the church is the very fact that you no longer hear the word in the church. I can't tell you how many people I've met, and how many people come here, and they will say, I've been fed. For the first time in a long time, I'm eating food again. Because they wander from church to church, from sea to sea. And you can't find the word of God. My friends, if we don't think the church in America is under judgment, we better think again. We are very much currently under the judgment of God. But as we consider the judgment of God against sin, and we've all sinned, 
I don't want us to leave feeling hopeless this morning. Amos is not a hopeless book. So the last thing I want you to see in your notes here is hear the roar of his undeserved mercy extended to the nations. Hear the roar of his undeserved mercy extended to the nations. We see all throughout the book of Amos that even in judgment, God proves to be gracious. Chapter 4, verses 1 and following. God has been showing Israel year after year through calamities and through different things, natural disasters, man-made disasters. He's done that intentionally so that people would turn and seek him and be saved. Five times in that section of Scripture, he tells us they failed to turn. They failed to acknowledge him. Then in chapter 5, God pleads with his people. Verse 4, seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And we see twice in chapter 7 that Amos intercedes on behalf of Israel and God gives him a vision of what he's going to do. And the Lord relents. So God's mercy and God's grace is is peeking through like like storm clouds. The sun is peeking through throughout the book. And then in chapter 9, it breaks through with full power. Chapter 9. Though God is going to bring certain judgment upon his people and upon the nations, as we read in verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. But it remains true what the verse continues to say. And it says this, Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. There's going to be a remnant. There's grace. How? Look at how this ominous book of judgment ends. It ends with great hope. A hope of mercy extended to all nations. Verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will raise up the booth of David. What is that? The booth is simply a tent. It's, it's, it's a meek structure. It's fragile. And God is going to raise up the This fragile, meek booth of David. What is he talking about here? This is a messianic passage. You see, God has promised that a king would come, a Messiah, the son of David, from the line of David. And he would set up an everlasting kingdom. And that was their hope. They had to look forward to the day when God was going to raise up the booth of David. You see, eventually Judah would be exiled as well. And the line of David would, would cease to exist as far as a kingly role. Until Jesus came on the scene as the son of David, as the king of kings. Jesus was the one that that Amos is pointing to here. This was the only hope for Israel. They had to return to their God by putting their hope in the restored tent of David under the rule of a messianic king. And that king to come was and is Jesus. Jesus is the tent of David who came to dwell and live and die for his people. He came and tabernacled among us. A tent was a safe place to dwell. It was a place of protection. It was no palace. It was lowly. It was humble. And this is Jesus, lowly and humble, but only the one in whom we can truly find protection and rest. God was telling Israel that they still had hope if they would find their hope in the booth of David that was going to be raised up. But the hope wasn't solely for Israel. Look at verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was one of the nations that's been prophesied against earlier. And all the nations who are called by my name, called by my name, that means elect. That God has elected people from all nations, a remnant of people from all nations, declares the Lord. He's going to do this. 
You see, the text begins with the judgment against all nations, and it ends with hope for all nations. All nations, all people, all creeds, all languages, all ethnicities were going to be able to find their hope solely in one place, in the booth of David, in Jesus Christ. God is holy, friends. His holiness must be satisfied or he wouldn't be God. We read in in Exodus these words that the Lord spoke to Moses about his own character. This is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who can by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. How on earth can this God exist? How can there be a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, yet he will not just overlook sin? Friends, the answer is in the booth of David. The answer is at the cross. Jesus Christ is the only satisfaction for God's wrath, for he poured out his own wrath upon his son to forgive the sins of the people who are united to his son. So so here's the picture. We come into the booth of David in order to endure the wrath of God. We come to Jesus by faith. We put our faith and our hope in Jesus, and we are united to him, and then we become part of the kingdom of God. We are brought into the booth of David, and we are safe from the lion. You see, friends, you don't only need to be saved from your sins. You need to be saved from the wrath of a holy God. Jesus is the only person who ever walked this earth who never deserved God's wrath. He never sinned. Jesus is the only Israelite who perfectly kept the covenant. Jesus is the only one who deserved and merited the promised blessings of God. And it is to Jesus that God is going to give all these promised blessings and to everyone who's united to him. So here's the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus did this for us. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf, and all those who have placed their faith in him and who are found in the tent are safe from the righteous wrath of the lion and are guaranteed to inherit the kingdom of God regardless of their ethnicity and can look forward to these words Verse 13 of Amos chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. So the day is coming. I mean, the plowman's going to be plowing and they're going to be reaping the, the, the harvest so quickly behind him that, that it's going to be a supernatural thing. This is a glorious kingdom that is coming. And all those who are united to Christ who are in the tent of David participate in this kingdom where there'll no longer be sin. There'll no longer be weeping. Goes on to say, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I had given them, says the Lord. Our God. Hear the roar of Amos this morning and let it drive you into the tent. Hear the lion on the hills roaring. God is a just God. He will not just overlook your sin. Say, ah, don't worry about it. He has to devour it. There's only one place you can run for protection it's to the booth of David, the tent of David. Get in that tent and you're safe. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. My friends, God is good. 
but he is not safe. He is the king, I tell you. He is the king. And the king is coming back. And today is the day of salvation. To believe in the Lord and be saved. To come under the booth of David and believe. Find your only hope in him. The only hope is that Jesus absorbed God's wrath on your behalf on the cross. And your only hope to live the righteous life that Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, we read earlier, in the face of the coming judgment, is through Jesus Christ. For his righteousness is credited to you as well. So this morning, I beg you and plead for you to close your eyes, hear the roar, and run to the booth of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we close this time of worship. But God, I feel weird saying that because how do you close worship? When we're told in your word, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That means that even the most minute things in our life are to be worship. So we're not closing worship here. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here and keep worshiping. When we eat, when we drink, when we parent, when we change diapers, when we go play with our kids, that we would be people of worship. And we've been freed up to worship. We don't have to fear. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are safe in the booth. And we see a righteous and holy God. And yes, we still tremble. But God, we are so, so at peace knowing that Jesus took the fangs on our behalf. He took the stripes on our behalf. And that in him, we are safe and we are saved. And we've been freed up to live a life that brings glory to our King. Lord, don't let us shy away from your nature, from who you are, from your holiness. Amos is not on the top ten list of sermons preached today, I guarantee it. But Father, I praise you that it's there. Because if we believed in the self-help God that's being peddled from the pulpits of America today, we'd all be in a whole lot of trouble. God, I ask you, Lord, to move in power upon the churches of America today, the churches of this world, and that all people from all tribes, languages, tongues, all nations would come and hear the gospel and believe and understand that the booth of David came for them as well. That people would hear the gospel and believe. So God, now we close this time singing about the grace. We've talked about judgment But that judgment should drive us to see how amazing the grace truly is that you give us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.